Your diabetic patient with renal insufficiency presents with abdominal pain. The imaging test of choice is CT with contrast. Do you proceed with the test? What are the risks to the patients? How might you protect the patient from the stress of a contrast load? You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. My guest today is Dr. Michael Rudnick, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in Philadelphia. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Rudnick. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Lee. Well, this is a common problem in practice, and, and as an internist, it seems to be more common than ever. Is that a true perception? Actually, yes, it is correct. My expectation is this problem will become even more common, and and I'll tell you why. There are several things that are occurring concurrently that make this almost like the perfect storm in terms of ingredients. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first is that as our population is living longer and longer, the percent of our population who have chronic kidney disease will be uh, greater. And uh, looking at data from like NHANES, et cetera, show that a significant proportion of patients or people over the age of 65 have underlying chronic kidney disease, which, and that's important to know because chronic kidney disease is the single greatest risk factor for developing contrast-induced nephropathy. The second is that the use of iodinated uh, radiologic studies like a uh, CAT scan is growing dramatically. Roughly, there are... um, Oh, I guess about uh, some 25 to 30 million CAT scans that are done each year in the United States, you know, that use uh, iodinated contrast. There's also a very large number, uh, but not anywhere as large as that, of cardiac catheterizations that are done. What that number is, is fairly fixed, and also peripheral arteriograms, that number is fairly fixed. But the number of CAT scans will improve. And, and so, there's going to, so you're taking this elderly population who are developing an increased prevalence of chronic kidney disease, and you're going to be doing more and more radiologic studies of iodinated contrast. And the third part of it is that, unfortunately, diabetes is also an epidemic, and more and more people are being diagnosed with diabetes and being treated for that. And when that's combined with renal failure, their risk of developing contrast nephropathy is extremely high, and that accounts for my terminology of the perfect storm, so to speak. And is there a creatinine level or a GFR that we should look at that we say, okay, now this person is at risk? Well, that's another excellent question. The problem that we have is that it's been known for some time now that serum creatinine by and of itself may not demonstrate a person who has uh, impaired renal function, especially in the uh, elderly population. Mm -hmm. And what's become very popular now is the use of equations to estimate the uh, glomerular filtration rate. This estimated GFR is now becoming widely used. In fact, in many places around the United States, if a person goes to have routine blood work and they take a, uh, their serum creatinine, their age, and their uh, gender, and their race, they will be able to uh, predict or equate you know, a uh, estimated GFR. And they use 60 or greater as relatively normal um, and uh, less than 60 is abnormal. So it's not unusual to have people have creatinines of 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, depending on you know, what age they are and what uh, gender and what race they are, to have estimated GFRs of below 60. So rather than say that there is a specific serum creatinine, because a serum creatinine, for example, of let's say 1.5, in someone who is 25 years old and uh, 200 pounds of muscle, versus 1.5 in an 80-year-old 
woman who weighs all 40 kilograms. Totally different. Totally different in terms of the implications on the GFR. I mean, you know, the first patient might have an estimated GFR of 70 or 80 cc's per minute with that serum creatinine, and the second one probably has an estimated GFR of closer to 20 to 30 cc's. So what many places are doing for screening is they are calculating the estimated GFR and they're taking precautions if it's depressed. Now, at what level of estimated GFR should you take a precaution for? Well, first of all, anybody who has an absolute level of serum creatinine, you should be taking precautions. That's, that goes without saying. And the higher the serum creatinine, the greater the risk, so therefore the greater the number of precautions that you should take. Mm-hmm. But we've also just said that you can have a normal serum creatinine and have a low estimated GFR, so that even with patients with normal creatinine in the elderly, it's worthwhile doing this calculation. And I would say that if the estimated GFR is 50 or less, that you should identify that patient as at increased risk and take precautions. Just one other point is that the estimated GFR is a difficult calculation to do on your own, you know, handheld uh, computer. But there are uh, multiple um, websites, and one of them is nephron, N-E-P-H-R-O-N dot com, that you just go into, and they ask you, you know, right on the first page of that, you just put in the f- three or four variables that I just gave you, and uh, you'll get your answer of what the estimated GFR is, uh, you know, in 30 seconds. Oh, that's good. That's terrific. So nephron dot com, and you plug in the variables and gives you the estimated GFR. That's correct. Very good. And is this something that uh, I send in my, my patient, they have the outpatient study, when should I recheck their creatinine, how quickly does this develop and then resolve? Well, ideally, I think that if you have patients who have a history of hypertension or diabetes, which are the two leading causes of renal failure in this country, or if you have patients who are you know, over the age of 60 and you want them to get a uh, study in which they're going to be receiving intravenous contrast or intraarterial contrast, you should go ahead, first of all, before the study, you should obtain a serum creatinine. And if it's abnormal or if the estimated GFR is low, you know, you should make the radiology center aware of that. Certainly, across the United States, if you were going for a heart catheterization, a cardiac catheterization, you would have to have a serum creatinine before they uh, ever gave you the dye. That's just standard of care. Mm -hmm. If you were going for an arteriogram, you would have to have a serum creatinine before they gave you the diet, standard of care. For the CT with the intravenous injection, although the risk may be somewhat less, there is much more variation on what is uh, considered standard of care. But more and more people are beginning to require or desire to have this serum creatinine, this estimated GFR, before giving intravenous contrast. It's a much bigger logistic problem. I think that the referring physicians can do a terrific job. You know, if they know well ahead of time that they're going to, you know, I mean, when I say well ahead of time, you know, uh, a week or, or whatever, that their patient is going to get that to arrange for them to get the serum creatinine before they get the study so they can be properly protected if necessary. You know, what is the time course with this? Do, do we see the deterioration in that first 24 hours? How does this develop and present? Sure. Well, there are a number of definitions that people use to qualify as an episode of contrast-induced nephropathy. One of the definitions is a rise in the uh, baseline serum creatinine of 0.5 or greater. Uh, Some people use a definition of, uh, a more sensitive definition of a rise in the serum creatinine of baseline serum creatinine of 25%. So that just gives you a, uh, that even small changes Mm -hmm. in the serum creatinine afterwards qualify for this. Now, you could say, well, does that mean anything? I mean, are these small changes important? And that's a good question to ask. 
But I will tell you, looking at observational studies of about, you know, there's five or seven of them in every single one that's been done. And these are patients, you know, who got their contrasts injected in the hospital during a cardiac catheterization Mm -hmm. for the most part. In every single case, uh, they were able to show that for patients who developed a rise in creatinine the way we just defined it, there was a greater risk of in-hospital mortality and morbidity, as well as a greater risk of one-year mortality. So then you say, well, I mean, is that a cause and effect? I mean, you know, did this rise in creatinine really cause this increase in mortality? And the studies don't prove that it's a cause and effect. They show the association but certainly it may be that the patients who develop the rise in creatinine were just sicker people to begin with, and those are the ones, you know, and it just kind of, they were more at risk for contrast nephropathy, so contrast nephropathy was really just a marker of their underlying illness rather than a cause of a particular problem itself. So that's one way of looking at it. But there are experimental models in animals in which uh, you can create, you know, acute kidney injury in the animal, and you can have distant injury produced in the heart and in the lungs, as well as other areas. So it may be something that acute renal failure sends out signals that does contribute to morbidity and mortality. At the very least, what these rises in creatinine tell us is that these are high-risk people, and you know they need to be followed more carefully than somebody who didn't have a rise in creatinine. Are there a number of patients uh, each year who actually go into a more uh, serious, long-lasting renal failure from a contrast load? I don't think we have any statistics on the number of people who actually develop this problem. And then, you know, as part of the definition, what do you consider to be clinically significant as opposed to just a rise in the serum creatinine? Fortunately, I can tell you that the studies are pretty consistent in that of the patients who develop this, only a extremely small percent, I mean, you know, just 1% or less or 2% or less, uh, the patients at risk for the need to go on dialysis. And the numbers wouldn't be much more for someone who develops oliguria. So the vast majority of these patients don't require dialysis. The vast majority of these patients remain non-oliguric. But we also have learned in recent years for contrast nephropathy as well as other forms of acute kidney injury where we used to think that patients would fully recover and return to their baseline serum creatinine after the event was over it's becoming increasingly observed that there's a proportion of patients, not an insignificant proportion of patients, who show recovery but do not completely recover back to their uh, previous level of renal function. And their creatinine, which may have been abnormal to start with, now remains even more abnormal. That's of concern to us. Well, I want to thank Dr. Michael Rudnick, who has been discussing with us uh, contrast nephropathy. Uh, this is Dr. Lee Friedman, your host of the Clinician's Roundtable. You've been listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.